John Berryman released a collection of poems called Dream Songs about a man named Henry. In 1972, Berryman jumps off a bridge. David Lynch, meanwhile, begins work on Eraserhead. The film comes out in 1977, as does Berryman's posthumous Henry's Fate. There's a law against Henry, but who to bring in? The authorities are struck with double vision. Hello listeners and welcome to this week's Double Vision. I'm your host, Timothy Wilcox. If you listened to my discussion last week with Emmett Penny, you may remember I announced, in reference to a scene in American Psycho, that this week I would be interviewing a Cheerio. Well, that Cheerio is me. We've got a really interesting topic ahead of us, but I am playing a bit looser with the timeline than normal. The usual conceit of this podcast is that the two works would have come out a matter of days or weeks from each other, sometimes a matter of months. This is technically true this time, in terms of release and readership and viewership, but the timeline of the writing is a little more complicated. If poems are the best words in the best order, a carefully laid out construction, if poems are personae and metaphor and image, if poems are a way to capture meaning in a way that otherwise would be difficult to express, if poems are things to read closely, to closely read in the way a counterintelligence operative closely reads, if our very dreams are things to be dissected and interpreted, telling us things around which to reshape our lives, telling other people things about which to lock us up, if poems are a space where a person's interior is laid open for inspection by sometimes hostile, perhaps even simply unintentionally cruel, attention of others, the dream songs by John Berryman threw a big human wrench named Henry right into the middle of all this. Writing amid what is often called confessional poetry, Berryman via Henry confesses to some of the worst of what humans are capable. In Dream Song 29, he writes that, quote, Never did Henry, as he thought he did, end anyone and hack her body up and hide the pieces where they may be found. He knows. He went over everyone, and nobody's missing. Often he reckons in the dawn them up. Nobody is ever missing. We can see here the obviously flawed, deranged logic of Henry. His fanciful recollections of these people are not the people in themselves, and that he can recall them in his mind is no proof against the suggestion that he killed and butchered anyone. Right from the first dream song, we see Henry, here as huffy Henry, unappeasable Henry, pride open for all the world to see, a condition from which Berryman's speaker cannot see how Henry survived. The assessment of and policing of Henry's mind, or at least Henry senses this is the case, is of such an extent that in Dream Song 4, he thinks, where did it all go wrong? There ought to be a law against Henry, to which his friend Mr. Bones replies, there is. But assessing the true reality of Henry and laying material blame is much more complicated. That first Dream Song goes on to conclude, quote, what he has now to say is a long wonder the world can bear and be. Once in a sycamore I was glad, all at the top, and I sang, Hard on the land grows the strong sea, and empty grows every bed. Well, what does that mean? We can continue to pry Henry open further through poetic analysis, but this is immediately situated as implicitly hostile. The core dream songs span 385 songs. They take the form of what Berryman calls an anti-sonnet, having a mostly consistent structure of three stanzas of six lines each. Behrman published several others here and there that are not part of the main project, and our subject today is a selection of poems written in the years leading up to Behrman's death in 1972, the finding, transcribing, organizing, and publishing of which follows precisely the production schedule of David Lynch's Eraserhead from 1972 to March of 1977, when both works are released. 
As one of the real heights of filmmaking, Eraserhead presents some of the most striking difference among the sorts of pairings I've been covering on this podcast. It has a pretty straightforward narrative, plus a few otherworldly interludes, but so much of it is just embracing the visual and auditory form. So much of it is fleshing out this really expansive, uncomfortable mood, which frequently extends into a deep sort of terror. No line is as important as how it is said. Pretty much all the dialogue is odd and stilted. Some of it relays important information. The first line is his neighbor asking, Are you Henry? To which he says, Yes. He's told that he's supposed to go visit this woman named Mary, who was his ex-girlfriend, and have dinner with her parents. We learn there that Mary had a baby, that the baby was premature, and there's something off about it, that they need to get married and move in together, but none of this occurs in a comfortably flowing conversation. You also have, around this, Mary's father going on about the pipes and about the new, tiny, man-made chickens that he got for dinner, and he's so overexcited, at complete odds with his surroundings, as Mary and her mother are both emotional wrecks, though the mother also ends up having an orgasm at the dinner table in this really sexual but distinctly unerotic scene where the tiny chicken's legs start pumping and so on. One thing we do learn from Mary's father is that he's been a plumber for 30 years, the city used to be all pastures, and he watched it turn into this hellhole it is now. And we see that hellishness from the start. After an opening sequence of a man pulling levers and things moving in and out of Henry's head, we see Henry wandering home. There's an industrial backdrop, there are huge piles of rubble, Henry steps into a puddle, and then when he gets to his apartment, the elevator doesn't work well, he has a plant on his nightstand, but it's this little dead tree in an uncontained pile of dirt. Otherwise, it's this very sparse little apartment. Mary's house is well as odd. It appears to be located right inside a train depot or some such place. There are also these big pipes running through. So then we get to the baby, whatever it is exactly. It looks inhuman, with this really tender, slick-looking skin. It's got a sort of beak and this long, super-thin neck that at one point extends out across the room. Henry is not prepared to face this world of marriage and a baby, especially coming as it does in these very inopportune conditions. And he's also at a bit of a personal dead end. He works at a factory as a printer. Mary says he is very clever at it, but he's on vacation from this work, and so he's not doing anything besides tending at some difficulty to this baby. We never really see him do anything. He has no hobbies. His apartment is barren besides a very simple bed and dresser and a radiator. So what's Henry's deal? Well, at one point, he's inside the imagined world of the radiator, and his head pops off, and out comes a version of the alien baby head. Then back in the real world, seemingly, a kid finds Henry's head sitting among the rubble outside the apartment. The kid takes it to some other facility, where it gets brought back into this lab. Now we have again another Henry being pried open. The man in the lab drills into Henry's brain, and then starts running this machine with all these wires and moving parts. When we get a close-up, we see it has these moving rows of pencils. So the output of the machine is a pencil comes out. The man sharpens it, he draws a single line, then erases part of it. He declares that it works. So you have Henry as this little eraser head, with his wild, upward curls of hair, and when the guy knocks a large pile of eraser shavings off the desk, we see the famous image from the poster of Jack Nance as Henry standing against this black background, and all these little specks floating around his head. We see that image again at the end as the man with the levers is going nuts pulling at Henry's until all goes white instead, and he is lovingly embraced by this woman seen earlier in the radiator. 
She's this cartoonishly homely woman with these massive plaster cheeks. When we first see her, she's dancing around these little sperms and then eventually starts stomping on them with this continued bashful glee. Then we see her again. She's singing, In heaven, everything is fine. You've got your good things, and I've got mine. In a later verse, change too, and you've got mine. But this heaven is the opposite of the hellhole city, and sure enough, the ending is the only point besides one when Henry is not expressing very visible discomfort or terror. He's not quite happy, but perhaps at peace. This otherworldly part is where it becomes impossible to completely parse. It seems to me like there's this meditative aspect to the radiator that even without much of anything, even in this chaotic situation, with just this crummy radiator to look at, Henry can still transcend in some way, because the only other time he's not miserable is when he first gets home with Mary and the baby. He gives an oddly loving smile to the two, oddly given how visually horrific the situation is made for us as the viewers, then lays across his bed to stare into the radiator. He finds another world there, which is at times horrific, remember this is where he loses his head, but perhaps it doesn't have to be, whereas he has no comparable hope of improving his life materially. And so dreamlike elements to the film, which are really hard to capture here in words, you really just have to watch it. It's unpleasant, it's disgusting at times, but it's also really amazing overall. The dreamlike elements are hard to pin down to any one meaning. We are not the ones to drill into Henry's head. We don't know what he's all about. We don't know his past, we don't know what he's thinking. We know he's troubled, he transgresses, he sleeps with his neighbor at one point when Mary leaves. At the end, he maybe kills the baby? It's hard to say what exactly is going on there. But that's Henry. So let's look at the other Henry. What is Henry's fate as written by John Berryman? A poem from June, 1968. With arms outflung, the clock announced 1020. Dozens of demons sprang and prayed on Henry, all on a heavy morning. The baby was ill, the sky was dark, the eye was id. Somebody put the sky on like a lid. Somebody was not returning. Oh, we'll wait. After all, after all, the doubter and the rest, they rest at all. On the night of the crucifying, perhaps their dreams were something truly remarkable. Perhaps their dreams had what to do with his dying, but that was very lonely. Haldol and Cerax, Phenobarbital, Viactyl by day, by deep night, Tuanol, and Thorazine kept Henry going like a natural man. I'm waiting for them to work, as sometimes they can, honey, in the bloodstream. And here we see a much more overt look at the psychological world in which all of this is developing. Psychoanalysis is by now well established in the United States, but Berryman was wary of the oversimplicity of concepts like the id. The conflation of the eye with the id comes up here among a series of flat images. The baby ill, the sky dark. Dark is one of the simplest adjectives you can offer there. But then the mind is also prone to associations. So then we get this simile and this bolder idea. Somebody put the sky on like a lid. Somebody who is not returning. Even as Jesus was crucified, people, those who doubted him and those who did not, went home and rested. They dreamed. What does it offer us to imagine some significance to their dreams? Especially now, where to be a natural man is the product of various pharmaceuticals, where he thinks of not the eye, but his bloodstream as where it was really all going on, where his feelings play out, where they changed. And would his blood now, with all these chemicals, allow him to sleep? The thought of the crucifixion emerges from an associational connection, looking at the clock. 
the arms outflung, 1020. Elsewhere, Berryman writes, Gulls, chains, voices, bells, honey, we're home. I don't care whether they cremate Henry or not. His labor of travel is done. He came upon some shore one time like foam, but he had to set out again or rot with his life on him like a ton. Then ends the poem, Henry had the wit to be afraid, and so my dear love were you. The ship bangs in, we relax in defeat, stiffen to the new acquaintances to be made, and the sky over our graves is blue. And so you have these images of sea voyages, and if you look at this in the level of connotation and tone, you have chains, and the chains are also voicing bells, where in the dream songs the bells call out for Henry, too late. Henry is dead or dying, perhaps to be cremated. It's a labor of travel. He's like foam on the shore, a really amorphous, inhuman, pitiable image. There is the rot and the weight of his life. Then the conclusion comes out with the confession. Henry was afraid. Of course he was afraid. His love was also afraid. It was the smart reaction. The end was in sight, but the world, on this aesthetic level, does not care. The sky is blue. All is clear and lovely. Back in Dream Song 14, Berryman writes, Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn. These grand literary images ultimately do not matter in themselves. They are not necessarily enough for one as troubled as Henry or as Berryman, and so Berryman employs these images in these poems, and we get it, but we also see, well, it's hollowed out. John Keats complained that Newton unweaved the rainbow by breaking it down into an identifiable spectrum of light, robbing it of its beauty. In the studied and diagnosis-filled world, Henry was a created being, a product of observable factors, but still some dreamy layer which resists temptation, which can fascinate us to look at, inspire awe rather than comprehension. So Berryman writes, Henry under construction was Henry indeed. Gigantic cranes faltered under the load, Spark showers from the welding played with daylight, crew after crew, placed each other like kings, all done anew, daily to the horror of the gathering crowd, which gazed in a silence of awe or sobbed aloud. The structure huge mounted apace, some sang, others in prayer knelt, when the western wing was added, one vast sigh arose, and made its way into the earless sky. Lifts were installed, many had their ashes hauled, parents in the throng looked down appalled. In the end, the mighty roof was hoisted on. The event transpired throughout the city at dawn, foot upon violent foot, converged to shining Henry in the risen sun. Question tormented the multitude one by one, to see to what use it would now be put. So that's Henry in a sense, just as the other Henry is a machine-made pencil, even though his pocket is full of pens. The ending here is to what use would Henry be put, Use alone, but no meaning. Though Henry is impressive, his roof is mighty, he is like a place of worship. Gigantic cranes falter in the making of him. There is bleakness, but Berryman does believe strongly in art. He believed in it so strongly that he sought to make poetry newly difficult, just as the form's ability to bring out inner life is perhaps of interest to new forms of scrutiny. The dream songs and Eraserhead alike must be encountered on their own terms, though the film moves so much slower than the compressed form of the dream songs. Prolonged dream ambience rather than the rapid sequence of images. Remember also that Henry, that is to say, Henry, Henry Spencer, the man with the eraser head, was himself a printer 
perhaps in Blake's printing house in hell, or perhaps just in that horrific being that is unappeasable Henry. It was the thought that they thought they could do it made Henry wicked in a way, but he should have come out and talked. Henry comes out and says he's Henry. The woman in the radiator sings that in heaven, everything is fine. The baby is ill, and some sort of sky is put on, but perhaps not like a lid, perhaps more like an electric light. Thank you.